Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Also, hey, like, subscribe, follow, wherever you're listening to this, whatever you need to do, make sure you keep up with what we're doing. And uh, hey, if you feel like leaving a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this, we appreciate anything you can do. So today's episode, uh, I'm trying something a little new, and I would love your feedback. Please hit us up anywhere that I just said, you know, DM me in socials or, uh, you know, uh, email me at mediumcoolpot at gmail.com, whatever you want to do here. Um, I want to try cutting these episodes down a little bit, and uh, I'm curious what you guys think of that. I've heard a couple of different things in terms of feedback in the past. Some people like the long form. And when I have guests and stuff, that stuff will almost inevitably be more long form, like a little bit longer, okay? But in terms of doing solo episodes or when I have Joe on or when I have uh, Jake on or, or whoever, like any any kind of uh, recurring guests, Matt Sosi or whoever, you know, we usually do two movies. And a lot of times we'll just like geek out about it for an hour and a half. But some people have talked about you know, really uh, being interested in maybe more digestible episodes where you could listen to them more realistically on your way to work or, <clears throat> excuse me, during a lunch hour or things like that. <clears throat> excuse me. So what, what I would uh, be, I would be interested in your feedback if you'd be interested uh, in kind of, if you like the long form, if you would like, uh, if it's going to be like a solo episode or, or kind of a traditional recurring guest episode. Uh, having those be a bit shorter, I am interested, I am interested, let me know. Uh, today, I'm going to try that out a little bit, where I'm going to try not to ramble about the movies I'm going to talk about, and I have several, so we'll see if I even do this. Um, but the goal is to kind of just talk a little bit about each of these and kind of what I get out of them, um, and I have a reason for this. Uh, so this is episode 98. And uh, episode 100 is coming up quickly, as I've said. And so uh, I've decided to embark on a journey to find my 100 favorite films of all time. Now, uh, it cannot be completed by episode 100. I'm not trying to do it for that episode. Uh, quite frankly, it's probably not going to be completed by the end of this year because I'm going to have to watch a bunch of 2022 movies uh, once we get through October. So, uh, yeah, I'm probably not going to get through that then but maybe starting next year I might bring up my 100 favorite movies of all time I've already started watching some of these movies and I've already started trying to uh, you know fill in some of the the uh, basically rewatch some of the movies that I haven't seen in a long time uh, three of which being Reservoir Dogs which we talked about uh, with my episodes with uh, Rick Jimenez uh, but also Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. I watched those recently as well. And I'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in... Uh, I love lists. And I'm interested in finding out what are my top 100. And so I basically went through Letterboxd. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I was thought really hard. I was looking through a lot of filmmakers' kind of filmographies. And it, it really came down to uh, me making a list that I'm looking at it right now has 197 titles on it. Uh, will I go through all of them? I'm not sure. Uh, that's a lot. But uh, I mean, I watch more movies than that a year, but that will still take a long time. 
Um, I also have an anticipated uh, favorite films of all time list. It's movies I haven't seen, um, but they're major blind spots, and I know enough about them that I actually think these could be some of my favorite movies of all time. I have 17 right now on there, uh, which will probably end up averaging out around 20. So uh, long story short, I have a lot of movies to watch, and I only have 58 that I feel really comfortable being on my top 100. So, uh, and I'm not going to share any of those with you yet. We'll talk about those in the future. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm working on this list. And as I was doing so, uh, I rewatched Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. And as I said, you know, Rick and I just talked about Tarantino movies for the last two episodes. And uh, it was a spur of the moment thing when we started uh, ranking the movies. It literally was just in the moment. I, we didn't plan that. So we were talking about it. And uh, I went back to kind of my default answers. What have I been saying for years, despite not having watched several of Tarantino's movies like Reservoir Dogs, like Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Death Proof? Um, I haven't seen The Hateful Eight probably since the year it came out or the year after. So, I mean, there, there are several movies that I haven't seen since they've come out or it's been it's been a while, something like that. So, uh, yeah, I rewatched Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill 1 and 2, and... Uh, Reservoir Dogs is really great, and it was like my number two, if I remember correctly, on that list, because like him, I kind of randomly did it on the spot as well, <clears throat> but I think I like Kill Bill more, and again, I say Kill Bill because I, as I said in those episodes, I look at Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 as kind of one film, as they were intended to be, and Reservoir Dogs is fucking incredible, but god damn it, I love Kill Bill. Uh, and and it's it's strange. I, I love I love both of them equally, just for different reasons. And when I think of them as one film, it's just like this epic. And man, it's like I think I think um, oh, what's her name? Um, wh- how how okay? Why don't why doesn't somebody tell me this? How does one fucking oh Uma Thurman? I was about to say how does one fucking forget the lead of the movie I'm talking about? Uh, so Uma Thurman is kind of amazing in these movies. The Kill Bill movies. Some of the moments whenever she's giving dialogue and stuff are so, you know, very written, right? And she's like acting, you know, like like there are certain things like that. But when she's taken on Pai Mei, for example, in Kill Bill Volume 2, when she meets Pai Mei for the first time and kind of like mouths off or something, and he like twists her arm and uh, he's like talking about, I'm going to snap your arm. She's begging him not to. And she's just like crying there's something about her performance I think is actually really effective. The same thing goes for um, whenever she uh, can't use her legs and she wheelchairs herself. Uh, she wheels herself out of the hospital. She finds the pussy wagon uh, in volume one. And she uh, she has to pull herself into the truck. And uh, as she's pulling and she's like stressing so hard to get in here, you know, there's like a tear that goes down her face. Uh, or, or in volume one, whenever she realized when she wakes up from a coma and realizes that her baby's gone because she was pregnant whenever she thought she well, when we suppose she died. Right. And so, <clears throat> excuse me again. So it's interesting uh, how good some of the performances actually are, uh, while at the same time being like very clearly written and very clearly like stylized. Um, it's just the way I like to see it. Plus the the audio. I thought the audio was going to be way over the top, having not seen it in several years. Um, but the audio design, like sound design and stuff, is so good. 
like definitely an homage to like samurai movies or kung fu movies, uh, things like that. But at the same time, like very contemporary for its time. And uh, man, Kill Bill fucking rules, man. And so, though I love Reservoir Dogs, I would probably flip those. I'd probably because again in, on my list when I talk with Rick, I put Kill Bill as one movie, um, and I'd probably put it higher. And I think Kill Bill might have been after, I can't remember, it was either right before or right after uh, Inglorious Bastards, but I, I need to rewatch that. So like that that also is something, it all started because I watched these Tarantino movies, and then I thought, dude, I should do a fucking top 100, that would be awesome, which I had a top 75 in the past, and I'm looking through it, which again was inspired because I was watching these movies that I liked. And I thought, man, that'd be a fun thing to rewatch a lot of these movies because I know I like them all. I may like them to varying degrees, and I might not like some of them as much as I used to, but I know I'm going to like them. Like, it's going to be a good time. So, yeah, I I, uh, I pulled up the old list that I had, and I'm like, there's no fucking way half of these movies are on my list. You know, <laughs> like, not anymore. Like, I just know some of these movies won't be on it. And even if they are on it i can't imagine them being as high as they were but then there are some movies like on that list wild strawberries i like i said it was out of 75 i think it was like 73 or something and if you remember whenever i did the bergman marathon with matt sosi earlier this year and uh partially last year as well i think uh wild strawberries was my favorite film by bergman that i watched in that marathon and so and again we didn't do stuff like persona or anything for that marathon i need to watch more and rewatch more of Bergman stuff. Uh, we didn't even do Seventh Seal, for example. So I'm looking forward to rewatching some of those things for this top 100 list as well. And just to give you some ideas of what I plan to watch for this, I have a list. Uh, these are all private lists, so you can't see them on Letterboxd. But uh, rewatching my favorite films of all time. Like I said, there's like 200 of them. Uh, so here are some titles that you'll probably hear me talk about coming up. Uh, Takashi Miike's 13 Assassins absolutely adore that film the last time I saw it was probably 7 or 8 years ago but I think it is it was unbelievable I mean it was classic in the best sense Miike enough it's a very like a digestible Miike movie like I don't think it's too wild it's classic it's the whole thing it's so great uh, but yeah I have uh, 13 Assassins I have the 400 Blows by Truffaut Eight and a half by Fellini, which I haven't seen in I, I might not have seen eight and a half in 15, 16, 17 years or something. I mean it's been a it's it's been a while. Um I have Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, Spike uh, Jones adaptation. Um I have things like Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother. I have several good art films, including Alphaville. Uh, my Life to Live, I've actually never seen, but it's a movie I believe will be on my list uh, for as much as I know about it. So that's actually on the anticipated list. Um, but I have uh, A Woman is a Woman, which is a Godard film that a lot of people, I feel like, don't like as much as others. Like, they might like it, but that has always been my favorite. But I haven't seen it in so long that I can't say that with certainty. But there's all kinds of stuff on here. There's... Uh, 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 Hanukkah's Amour. I don't know why that was hard for me to say, but in 2012, Michael Hanukkah uh, did uh, Amour. 
uh, Anatomy of a Murder, Apocalypse Now, Asphalt Jungle, Barry Lyndon. Uh, I want to rewatch Bowling for Columbine, the Michael Moore documentary, Breaking the Waves, the Von Trier film, uh, Buffalo 66. I love. I need to rewatch something like Brokeback Mountain. I mean, I love Ang Lee, but I don't remember that movie very well. Uh, I need to rewatch stuff like Casino, Children of Men. Uh, Chinatown, City Lights, Citizen Kane even. I mean, some of these are, are movies, of course, that I've seen many times, but the many times I watched it were within a maybe five years or so, and I haven't seen them in probably over a decade. Um, and then there are other movies like Dog Day Afternoon, uh, District 9, which I adored when I saw it, and it was on my list originally, that 75, my favorite 75 movies or whatever. But I don't remember District 9 enough to even imagine it being like one of my favorite movies of all time like that's one that seems like outlandish <laughs> like I just can't imagine you know looking at something like uh David Lynch uh, I have the elephant man on here um that was always my favorite movie of his I just had like an emotional connection to it and I, I like several of his movies I love Blue Velvet I like Eraserhead stuff like that uh but the elephant man was the one that really got me I have never seen the elephant man uh, since, or I have not rather seen The Elephant Man since the first time I saw it, and that was probably in like 2004, maybe 2005, something like that. So, I mean, it's been a while. Uh, but there, so my point is, there's a bunch of movies from all over the place Ghost in the Shell, the anime, another random one, Roman Polanski's, which fucked that human piece of garbage, but uh, the, the Ghost Writer from 2010, a movie that is. Not per, I mean, people like it, but it's not particularly loved. Um, even on Letterboxd, like uh, three stars, three and a half, and four are the, like, they're way higher than all of the other ratings. Um, but I had this as a five-star movie in 2010. Now, again, I have not seen it probably in 10 years now. Um, so I don't know how much I will like that movie anymore, but I'm, I'm excited to see what's up. Uh, and then there are things like La Jete, uh, Jules and Jim, Listen Up Philip, which was a movie that came out in, what was it, 2014? Um, and I absolutely adored it. Looking forward to watching that one. The Lord of the Rings trilogy will definitely be on the list. I actually don't really need to rewatch them. I just want to. They, are, they might even be top 10. I'm a huge fan of Peter Jackson's original Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, a big deal there. Uh, Life is Beautiful I haven't seen in more than a, well over a decade. I probably haven't seen that in 20 years. Uh, M, the Fritz Lang movie. Totally got to check that out. Love that movie. Fritz Lang Metropolis as well. Um, Michael uh, Mike Lee's Naked. Huge fan. Uh, I mean, these are the types of movies I'm watching, including some old film noirs like Night in the City, for example. Uh, going a different direction, you know, on the waterfront. Uh, the Ilya Kazan movie, very important. Uh, the Vim Vendors movie, Paris, Texas, which blew my fucking mind whenever Joe and I did the night best films of 1984. I think it was last year. Uh, Paris, Texas blew my mind. I need to watch it again because I don't like putting favorite movies on like my favorite movies of all time list unless I've seen them twice and unless there has been at least a little bit of space where I feel like I need to rewatch it. Um, that's why movies like uh, Dick Johnson is Dead, which was my favorite film of 2020. Um, that will not be on this list. 
uh, The Power of the Dog that came out. It was my favorite film of last year. And the more and more and more and more I've thought about it, the more I think that movie's a fucking masterpiece. Uh, so uh, maybe when I watch it again, I might actually give it five stars because I had no five-star movies last year. Um, so The Power of the Dog is one that I am waiting until I feel like I need to see it again so I can give it kind of... Can I get a bit of a fresh take? I mean, I, I will have seen it, of course, but I need a bit of a fresh take. And then there are other movies like uh, The Red Shoes and we Requiem for a Dream, uh, Requiem for a Dream, or Rafifi, the old uh, 19, what is it, 60 or 55, I think it is, uh, heist movie. Um, that's another one, Seven Samurai and The Seventh Seal. I mentioned the, the latter uh, earlier. Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, Spring. If you haven't seen the Kim Kaduk film, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring, um, that is a movie I have not seen probably since the mid 2000s, 2008 at the latest. Um, and it's one of those movies that seem like it should be boring, but it kind of blew my fucking mind so much that I couldn't stop watching it. Cause at the time that I first saw that movie, it was a little slow for me, but what was happening was so like gripping for me and where I was in my life for some reason uh, that it really connected with me. And so that's what I'm really looking forward to watching. But again, I haven't seen that in 15 years, probably. So there are a lot more, of course, than that, uh, that I want to rewatch and see what will kind of fill out the rest of my top 100 and what will bump some things off and uh, stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I want to talk a little bit today about some movies that I've watched recently. Now, again, I've already talked about Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 uh, briefly just to kind of tie into my last couple of episodes with Rick Jimenez. And again, if you haven't checked out the new Extinction AD, what are you waiting for? If you like metal, go check it out. Uh, but I've watched a few movies recently, and I'm going to talk a little bit about them here. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go like super in-depth about them. I just, just kind of want to talk about them a little bit and kind of process as I talk through them. Um, but I watched uh, the uh, Todd Field movie, Little Children, from 2006. I rewatched There Will Be Blood, the Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, I rewatched Fight Club, the David Fincher film. If you can't tell, this has been a really fun time rewatching these movies. Because <laughs> uh, even if I, whether I like them or not anymore, the point is like they're at least entertaining to just sit and watch. Um, Almost Famous, the Cameron Crowe movie. Did I say that right? I think it's Cameron Crowe. Um, why is it hard to find that? Yes, Cameron Crowe. All right, I got it right. Uh, but yeah, Almost Famous. I haven't seen, again, another one I haven't seen in over 15 years probably. But I uh, really love that. Uh, like I loved being able to rewatch that one, I mean. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about those here in a minute. But we are going to start with Todd Field, uh, Todd Field's Little Children. Little Children from 2006. It was directed by Todd Field, written by Todd Field and Tom Perota. Uh, the cast is Kate Winslet, Jennifer Connelly, Patrick Wilson, Jackie Earl Haley, uh, our friend Rorschach from uh, Watchmen, Noah Emmerich, uh, Greg Edelman, and Phyllis Somerville. It was released October 6, 2006, with a limited release, but came out with a wide release. February 9th, 2007. Uh, it had a budget of $26 million to be made, but then the box office was only $14.8 Watching the movie 
uh, and rewatching it, I'm not surprised. It is not the type of movie I feel like would really reach a mass audience, uh, but it definitely deserves more than the four fourteen point eight million. Um, where to watch this streaming? Uh, nowhere. It's actually kind of hard to find for a stupid reason. Uh, you can rent it, however. I rented it through Amazon, um, but you know, definitely look wherever you rent things online and uh, see if you can find little children. That's how you can watch it. And it follows the lives of two lovelorn spouses from separate marriages, a registered sex worker, uh, or sex... (laughs) That was a weird uh, mistake, but a registered sex offender, not worker, offender, uh, and a disgraced ex-police officer, uh, and how they intersect as they struggle to resist their vulnerabilities and temptations. The film largely follows Sarah Pierce, it's Kate Winslet's character, <clears throat> and uh, Patrick Wilson's character, Brad. And uh, Sarah is married to uh, Richard, and the Pierces live in one house. And then Brad is married to Kathy, uh, played by Jennifer Connelly, and they live in a- another house. And um, uh, through a, you know, by going to the park every day with their children, uh, Brad and Sarah eventually meet and kind of, uh, you know, as uh, just kind of as a game, uh, Sarah and Brad kiss at one point, uh, basically trying to shock all of the, uh, you know, suburban uh, mothers who uh, just kind of fawn over Brad's beauty. And, you know, he is this... uh, this uh, stay-at-home dad or whatever, and and they they fantasize about what it's like to be with him and what he does, and so Sarah trying to basically shut them the fuck up and like show how cool she is uh, ends up getting a kiss from Brad, uh, but it ends up backfiring a bit. Anyways, um, it ends up leading uh, to a series of events uh, that are, uh, I mean, needless to say, shocking. Uh, Kate Winslet. And uh, like, or rather, Sarah and Brad, you know, have an affair. Uh, Brad is unhappy with his wife, Kathy. uh, And the same goes for uh, Sarah and Richard. Um, All the while, Brad is has I wouldn't call him a friend, uh, but an kind of old acquaintance in Larry. And Larry is an ex cop who has uh, some trouble. He got kicked off the force for uh, basically. Well, I won't tell you why. If If you see the movie, you'll learn. And so he's kind of uh, overcompensating for not having that in his life anymore. And he kind of has this neighborhood watch of sorts. And recently brought into the neighborhood is Ronnie, played by Jackie Earl Haley. And Ronnie is a former sex offender. And, uh, well, uh, I don't know. I'll let you see how the term former works in that. We'll see how that plays out when you watch the movie if you haven't seen it. So uh, Ronnie is uh, is pretty troubled, and he and his mother May, played by Phyllis Somerville, who is amazing. I, I love her very much. Um, but uh, yeah, they you know they kind of mind their own business. And uh, the, the the thing about this film is, you know, Brad is very clearly going through a midlife crisis. His life is stale. He's not particularly happy. You know, he has the uh, gorgeous, successful wife, as as he would kind of uh, paint that. Thing and and he has a house and and he has a beautiful child but it seems like even with his kid like he can't connect with his kid the same way his wife Kathy can and uh you know he like kind of uh 
dreamily watches these uh, skateboarders just on the street. And they're like, you know, jumping off of, um, you know, uh, jumping down staircases and things like that. And he just kind of watches them in kind of amazement. And and, uh, there's almost like a nostalgia to it. Uh, as if he were someone who skateboarded in the past or did things like that. There's definitely this very clear uh, struggle with getting older with Brad. Sarah is someone who has the exact same experiences every day, and she needs something new and exciting and meaningful and fulfilling uh, in her days. And her daughter, Lucy, uh, is just uh, quite a bit of a handful for her, especially when it seems like her batteries are kind of on empty, uh, you know, all the time. And uh, by her, I mean Sarah's batteries. And so, you know, what we see is her kind of almost going through a midlife crisis of sorts as well, where, you know, she, she at least the way the movie portrays uh, Sarah, she's not like a traditionally beautiful woman, and you know she has, you know she's she's nothing like Kathy Jennifer Connelly's uh, character, which uh, my wife and I were watching. We're like, dude, like Kate Winslet's way hotter than Jennifer Connelly, <laughs> uh, and my wife's just like, yeah, totally. She's like way hotter. Um, but yeah, the the uh, so you have this couple Sarah and Brad that are having this affair, and it's like really exciting, and it's something new for them, but. Uh, you know, through this experience, not only are they learning what they want in life, they're learning what they don't have in life with their current partners and things. Um, but they're also living kind of through these experiences that we see uh, with Larry, the acquaintance I mentioned earlier uh, of Brad's. And uh, he kind of, har- well, not just kind of, he straight up harasses Ronnie, the Jackie Earl Haley character, uh, and his mother May, um, by you know constantly going to their house, uh, just screaming from the street, so he's not technically on their property, uh, but so he can kind of harass them from the street. He's screaming at them, saying like, you know, this get this filth out of our neighborhood. You know, your children, you should be scared. They're not protected. They're not safe. Um, a lot of that. There's a there's a pivotal scene where Ronnie goes to the uh, public pool, and there are just like hundreds of kids here. And it takes one parent seeing Ronnie there to pull their kid out rather aggressively of the pool. And then you see all of these other parents like storm over to the pool and start just yanking their kids out of the water, which, of course, then terrifies all the kids. Um, And, you know, they you end up seeing Ronnie escorted away from the pool by the police. And it's interesting because by the end. Like, Ronnie is undeniably troubled, and uh, it's interesting how, I don't want to say the film shines a sympathetic light on him, I I don't mean to say that, Uh, but it's, uh, you start to see that there's a human behind this problem, and this fucker needs help. Like, that's kind of the, uh, the feeling I got, at least, watching this. Uh, the film uh, overall, it's shot fairly well. There's a there is a voiceover narration that for those who don't like uh, super, uh, I don't want to say expository, but like uh, uh, if they don't like if you don't like narration that is kind of uh, detailing what is happening as you watch, uh, like a narr- a proper narrator, uh, you will hate this. I love it. It's like uh, the narrator's reading the book little children as we watch scenes play out 
Um, and I'm a big fan of narration when it's done, at least according to my taste, well. And I actually am a fan of the little children thing. It could be done better, yes, but uh, I it just, I don't know, there's like this very much audiobook narrator vibe to uh, the whole deal uh, while we watch them, you know, uh, do simple things like, you know, Brad and Sarah look at each other. And the narrator kind of adds context to it. Um, or or Brad and Kathy, you know, in the room, and they're not even really sharing a word, but the way that their body language is, the narrator kind of builds this context. And I think um, I think that's an art in and of itself. And again, this is not uh, the best version of that. But I think Todd Field does a pretty good job, you know, uh, adapting something like this novel. Uh Little Children is a film about, you know, uh, middle-aged folks coming to reality uh, or coming to the realization that they're not getting any younger. Um, It's a film about, you know, how we uh, treat troubled minds. It's a film about, you know, uh, uh, just humans and, and human nature and a desire to love and be loved. It's a film about, um, you know, needing love, uh, needing something to kind of keep you moving uh, from day to day uh, so that you're not just a robot, but that you have something that you can either be passionate about or that you can feel fulfilled by doing that thing. And in this th- case, it's relationships or or, or whatnot. Um we also have the uh, the idea of, uh, you know, with, with Larry, for example, like the kind of problematic ideas of how we uh, sensationalize certain issues. You know, uh, Ronnie being in the neighborhood was not something that was inherently bad or troublesome. Now, as you watch the movie, you see that, uh, I want to be clear, uh, Ronnie still struggles with his issues that got him in trouble in the first place. He is not a character that is uh, just like better and people are harassing him. For all intents and purposes, they're harassing him. And though they're, I think they're doing it for the wrong reasons, uh, Ronnie still needs to be, uh, he needs help still is what I'm getting at. So it's an interesting look at, you know, how do we help someone like this? And and what does that look like? And what does that mean? I think the film kind of gets there eventually and shows kind of the uh, the challenges and in some cases horrors of, you know, what this sort of behavior, uh, both Ronnie's behavior and Larry's behavior can lead to uh, because Larry, quite frankly, is a bully. So, you know, the film is kind of looking at what does bullyism do, you know, in his situation. Um, and I don't know, there's just, there's a lot to this movie. And is it the most profound, incredible thing? No, but I still really liked this movie. Uh, this was on my favorites of all time on the original list that I had. Uh, and we will see whenever I get to my uh favorite films of all time whenever I share them with you on here which I'm sure I will we'll see if Little Children ends up on there for the time being however uh, I gave Little Children a 4 out of 5 I think it is a solid movie and you should definitely go check it out it is worth the rental if you choose to rent it Uh, up next I'm going to and I'm going to do this briefly because I've talked about this movie before and I have a feeling I'll talk about it again Uh, but it is my favorite film of 2007 There Will Be Blood
There Will Be Blood from 2007. Oh my God. This is written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It is based on the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair. Uh, the cast, Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano, are the most notable names uh, and characters in the uh, in the movie. Go to IMDb to check out more cast members. Release date, December 26th, 2007, was the limited release, probably just so it could get into the 2007 awards. Uh, but the wide release was actually January 25th, 2008. It had a budget of $25 million. It made a box office of $76.2 million, and you can rent this anywhere. It is not streaming currently uh, on any of the major platforms. Now, it is no secret for anyone who I have uh, talked with uh, on the podcast, or anyone who knows me, or even anyone who's listened to the podcast, uh, it's not a secret that There Will Be Blood uh, is for sure one of my favorite films uh, of all time. Where it will be on the list, I will let you wait and see. I knew this before I even rewatched it, okay? Um, I think There Will Be Blood might be the best film of the aughts, the 2000s. Um, and I think it's one of the, not only one of the great American films of the, you know, uh, new millennium, 21st century is what I was looking for, uh, but ever. I mean, I, I that's how, that's where I kind of hold There Will Be Blood, um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about it, but it's uh, it's about the uh, ruthless silver miner turned oil prospector, Daniel Plainview, who moves to oil rich California and using his son to project a trustworthy family man image. Plainview cons local landowners into selling him their valuable properties for a pittance. However, local preacher Eli Sunday uh, suspects Plainview's motives and intentions, starting a slow burning feud that threatens both their lives. Um, I think one of the greatest cinema feuds is uh, uh, Paul Dano's Eli Sunday and Daniel Day-Lewis's um, Daniel Plainview. Daniel Plainview is um, a complete heel in this movie. At the beginning, you almost feel like he's just kind of a strict old school kind of guy. Uh, but you realize that we essentially follow the villain, Throughout this whole movie. Now, Eli Sunday is by no means the hero. Okay. Eli Sunday is just as corrupt and just as villainous. Okay. But I remember being in a grad school screenwriting uh, class and I was writing a movie and the character that was my protagonist was not really someone that you like. I think it was a fascinating character, but it wasn't like a character you like. Okay. Or that you maybe root for. Like you can see that this character has problematic behaviors and beliefs. And my teacher said, uh, you can't do that. You got to have a character that people will like. And the first thing I said was, well, what about There Will Be Blood? I mean, it didn't it win some like major awards that year? <laughs> yeah, you know, like kind of saying like the studio system was down with it and like people liked it. Of course, it was a success. It made uh, three times its budget. Uh, so that was definitely bringing in some profit. But I think Daniel Plainview is a is a, a villain. But the thing is, though, uh, this is a villain, as I would say, uh, with a full character. You know, you watch this character kind of descend into uh, just kind of a more strict, uh, more um, close-minded, more... Um, 
what's the word, kind of maybe hateful uh, character. And we watched this happen kind of in three dimensions as, as the character um, kind of develops throughout the entire film. I was really struck this time by Daniel Day-Lewis's character, the, how he can act without saying words and how he can just act with with the cadence or the uh, the speed at which he speaks um, and, and just how he uses voice to tell a story and to tell you about his character, not even just in the rest of the performance, just the voice alone, let alone, uh, you know, the the uh, demeanor or, or the way that he walks. You know, if you watch him in the first opening 10 minutes and then you watch the last 10 minutes, that is a different person. That is someone who's aged 40 years or whatever, you know, um, it's it's kind of amazing this performance, and it's not like a big surprise. Daniel Day Lewis has plenty of really great uh, performances, but there's something about this one that I think really stands chief among them. And uh, you know, it's no, also no secret that Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite living filmmaker. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, of course, I've said is my favorite of all time. Hitchcock being a close second, probably, um, and people like that. But Paul Thomas Anderson is, in terms of people who are alive, he's it. And this movie, so I love Boogie Nights and I love Magnolia. For the longest time, those were at the very top of my list. They weren't number one, but they were way up there. I mean, you know, and watching There Will Be Blood put him on a whole different level for me. And I'm not even saying this is my favorite film of his, though maybe it is. Um, but for a long time, Boogie Nights was just because on a personal level, I just I didn't necessarily think it was his best made movie, but it was my favorite of his. And it's still it's still way up there. It might be, uh, you know, it might be second, uh, second or third. Uh, when I rewatch The Master, we'll see if I love that as much as I still uh, love There Will Be Blood, because those might be my top two. But when he got into this There Will Be Blood style. And again, as I said, my favorite filmmaker being Stanley Kubrick, you get a lot of Kubrick here. There is a lot of uh, style. The, the difference between There Will Be Blood and a Kubrick film like this, honestly, is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson really lets the actors perform. He, uh, he gives room to Daniel Day-Lewis to be as great as he is. He gives room to Paul Dano to be as wacky and wild as he is in this movie. Whereas Kubrick often could kind of smother his actors by kind of keeping them so under his thumb because he wanted them to be a certain way. And I, I'm talking about my favorite filmmaker here. I'm not digging on him. I'm just saying it's a different thing. And I love phenomenal performances. And so watching something like a Paul Thomas Anderson film with Daniel Day-Lewis and Paul Dano, it's just like, fuck, I've never seen these guys better. You know, they're both just incredible. And this has one of the greatest endings I've ever seen. But this is uh, an interesting film about... Uh, I think one can take things about morality out of it. You know, what is morality? What does it mean? And, and how does that function in this world and this uh, in these characters? It, it uh, ties in uh, the ideas of family and love. And we watch uh, Daniel Plainview and his son, H.W., and how they respond and react throughout the whole film. Because I by no means believe that Daniel Plainview didn't care about H.W., but by the end... Uh, you see that the person that Daniel Plainview has become, there is no room for someone like H.W. there. And so uh, that kind of evolution from beginning to end. I mean, the cinematography is uh, second to none. 
uh, incredible camera stuff. I specifically remember whenever the uh, oil rig uh, blows up because they hit like a, a pocket or something, like an air pocket uh, or whatever it was. But there's this huge blast and it causes HW's uh, ears to burst, his eardrums to burst or whatever. And he can't hear anymore. He's deaf. And he's just uh, laying on top of this. Uh, he was kind of like uh, hovering over the hole. So it hit him full force. And he kind of falls back on the structure. And when they get him off the structure, Daniel Plainview, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, uh, carries him. And he just fucking runs to, like, this this building. Um, and he just runs across this, like, kind of uh, this dirt land. And the camera just tracks with him the whole time. And you get a, it's just like several seconds of you just being able to take in the gravity of not only what is happening with the oil rig, but also what is happening internally with these characters. There's a, there's a slight, it's a very smooth shot, but there's a slight uh, shakiness to it. And uh, there's just something about how perfect that shot is. That's actually something. Uh, I think about a, a lot when I think of this movie. It's one of the first shots that come to mind is this incredible sequence. But it's also amazing because, you know, uh, for as much as he seems to truly care about HW, uh, Daniel Plainview, I mean, uh, you know, how much he cares about HW, he also goes back to the rig and chooses to help the rig over helping HW partially because he knows he does he has no idea how to help HW. So what does he do? He turns his attention to something he can help. But that tells so much about that character. And so uh, again, I, I don't really want to talk about the full uh, the full film and and everything. I mean, I, I've talked a lot about there will be blood over. Uh, you know, the last uh, year and a half or uh, almost two years uh, that I've been doing this. And There Will Be Blood is a movie I think everyone needs to see. Um, this is the first film that Paul Thomas Anderson did that kind of demanded you to put the film together where you see these uh, these scenes kind of pass before you and it's all in like subtext. All the narrative and everything is really happening in subtext. Um, and it has one of the greatest endings of all time, I think. Um, I, 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 I just, I, I don't want to tell you what it is in case you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it, what in the fuck are you doing? Watch this movie. There Will Be Blood is an incredible experience, and uh, like I said, at the very least, you got to watch it to see how Daniel Day-Lewis transforms from the beginning to the end of this movie. Uh, you got to watch it to see uh, the ideas of greed, um, competition, capitalism, uh, all of these things are kind of are, are tied in and, and kind of wrestled with throughout the film. And again, dealing with family, I mean, not only HW, but there is a guy that comes in uh, who claims to be Daniel's brother. There are a lot of aspects of, of what family is and how that functions. We even get a little of that with Eli Sunday and the Sunday family um, and things of that nature. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, I could dissect this all day, and I'll probably do a better job for it sometime uh, in the future uh, with a guest, probably. But the thing is, There Will Be Blood is a movie that uh, really speaks to me. I mean, this is the kind of film I watch and go, man, that's fucking cinema right there. And I know that's a pretentious differentiation, uh, and it's not my intent intent to to mean it that way, but I think you like get what I mean when I say that, you know? Um, and it's much like when I watched The Power of the Dog last year, and it made my favorite films of 2021. 
And what was the film that I compared it to? There Will Be Blood. Because there was something about it. It had a quality that really tied in. I'll rip into this movie some more later. But just as a reminder, please go check this movie out. It is amazing. And as I said, it will be on my favorite films of all time. But where it falls, we shall see in the future. Uh, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk a little bit about Fight Club. All right, Fight Club from 1999, directed by David Fincher, written by Jim Mules, uh, based on the novel of the same name by Chuck Palahniuk. It is, uh, the cast is Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter, Meatloaf, and Jared Leto, to name a few. The release date was October 15th, 1999. The budget, 63 to $65 million, but it made over $100 million dollars. Um, streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime right now. So if you have either of those, you can watch that shiz for uh, the cost of your subscription. Uh, it is a uh, wild film, I guess uh, one could say. Uh, for a long time, this was on my uh, favorite films of all time. I'm not going to tell you if it uh, stayed there or not. Again, we will uh, talk about my favorite films of all time in the future. But uh, this is a movie that I've always held in high regard. And when I think about my favorite Fincher films, this was always one that would come to mind, even though I hadn't seen Fight Club in a long time. I just remember those uh, scenes like when Edward Norton goes into his boss's office and says, hey, basically, I want to stop working, but I need you to keep paying me. And here's why you should pay me. And then he starts basically beating himself up, acting like his boss is beating him up. And, uh, you know, eventually he gets, um, you know, a quote unquote at work or uh, a work at home job and he continues to get paid to do nothing, uh, you know, and uh, there's, you know, the the sequence where, uh, you know, he, the first time he has to ask Brad Pitt for help uh, because his condo got blown up. And so uh, he meets up with Brad Pitt and they fight behind this um, this uh, convenience store. You know, and, and he says, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. It's like a line that I remember all the way down to, um, you know, the uh, to um, uh, Meatloaf's character. Uh, why am I forgetting Meatloaf's character? That seems kind of uh, ridiculous. Let's see if we can. Oh, Bob. Duh. Um, I was just about to look it up and I remembered. Um, but uh, yeah, Bob, as uh, Edward Norton's character says, uh, Bob with the bitch tits. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the sequences where, where Edward Norton's character goes into these, um, you know, uh, whether they're like AA meetings or, or, or uh, cancers, uh, people struggling with cancer. And, you know, the, there are these uh, groups that you can go talk with. And so he would go to these because he found catharsis there. You know, he found something that would uh, that would let him feel heard and and he could like see other people struggling in their lives. And, and that like meant something to him. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's uh, there's a lot going on with Fight Club. But here's the thing I want to talk about real quick. Uh, when I was at Ball State University, there was uh, something that me and a few of my friends called The List. And I think I've talked about this on here with uh, Jake. But because uh, Jake was a part of my crew here. And so the list comp was comprised of like Boondock Saints, for example. Fight Club was definitely on there. I'm trying to think of some other, the Matrix, uh, things like this. 
movies that were super influential on these students, these filmmakers, these future filmmakers, hopefully. Uh, and they wanted to make these movies. They wanted flickering fluorescent lights. They wanted, you know, wise cracking. I mean, Fight Club was that. Uh, you know, Boogie Nights, or not Boogie Nights, sorry, uh, Boondock Saints, terrible comparison, my apologies. Um, but Boondock Saints, you know, they wanted it to be like cool and blah, blah, blah. Well, the thing is, uh, we didn't have the budgets as students to make any movies like this. So all of those movies ended up being terrible. Secondly, um, I'm like not surprised that Fight Club was a movie that was on that list. And I, I say that because... All they were looking for, these students, is they wanted something that they thought was cool and entertaining. And that was going to be their influence. And the funny thing is, Fight Club, I could see why that would uh, be true for a lot of people. Edward Norton's character, uh, he's the narrator, so to speak. Edward Norton's character is not cool. He's actually described to basically be the least cool. Uh, you know, all, he doesn't really go out. He has this condo that is like his life. He buys everything uh, for superficial reasons from a superficial mag, like a uh, uh, magazine or whatever. And uh, like, that's his life as he works all day, comes home, can hardly sleep. He's kind of bored. He's buying stuff, you know, from a catalog. And then he starts all over again. Right. And so uh, like Edward Norton is not cool. Uh, you know, this narrator, but then, you know, he has Tyler Durden who he meets, which is Brad Pitt's character. Tyler Durden is the ultimate representation of cool. That's his whole thing. And it's cool based on the narrator, Edward Norton's character's uh, ideas of cool. So when I first saw this, I thought Tyler Durden was cool as fuck. When I saw it a second time, I thought Tyler Durden was cool as fuck. When I saw it a third time, which is years after that, I remember thinking like, and it might not have actually been the third time, but kind of third round of times that I saw it, I guess. But I remember thinking, man, Tyler Durden is trying really fucking hard to be cool. You know, and, and at that point, it, that movie kind of dropped for me a bit. And I was just like, it's not really that good. And then the fourth time I watched it, I liked it a lot more because I realized, oh, Brad, like Tyler Durden is the representation of cool based on the narrator. And of course, the narrator would think this is cool. It's not about whether I think it's cool. Tyler Durden is a character who is supposed to be cool. But even if he's not, his character still does something very unique for the story. And I thought, fuck, that's really great. I watch it this time. And I take all of that into consideration, and I'm kind of back to thinking, Tyler Durden is trying real fucking hard to be cool. And I get that's kind of the point of the movie, but it just doesn't work on me anymore. And Matthew Sosi used to uh, talk, or used to, he still does. He uh, On the show, he's talked about how you should rewatch movies you love every five years or so, even movies you didn't like before, because like you might have a whole new idea like understanding of the movie, but just because of life experience. And I feel like maybe I'm just not at a point in my life where this is cool anymore. Um, and I want to clarify, I don't dislike fight club. I don't mean that. I just found that very uh, underwhelming in comparison to my past expectations. So I'm, I'm watching Tyler Durden try to be really fucking cool. 
Um, and I'm watching uh, the narrator, Edward Norton's character, you know, being not cool, but trying real hard to be. And then, you know, Robert Paulson, which is the the meatloaf character, uh, is uh, actually like a great character um, because it is a he is a character that has nothing to lose. And he finds a brotherhood in the fight club, so to speak. And uh, but he's never really as commit. Not I don't want to say com- he's as, he's loyal, but he doesn't understand how to be as committed as everyone else. And you get that in a certain scene where uh, Edward Norton or uh, uh, Tyler Durden goes out uh, and gets in Robert Paulson's face and basically says, "You're too fat and you're too old. Get the fuck off my property." And uh, Brad Pitt walk his character walks in and Edward Norton's narrator kind of comes out and he says, "Yeah, you're too fat and old or whatever." And so you see like Robert Paulson kind of just like put his head down a little bit and just kind of start to walk away. And you see the narrator kind of run out and get him like, "Hey, hey, this is like the game. like you're supposed to stay here, you know um, uh, And so if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about if you haven't, go I mean you can watch it. This is also whenever David Fincher was in his whole thing. Uh, I thought it started with Panic Room. I realized that uh, it's a lot here where he started using a CG, uh, CGI to do a lot of camera tricks. So like if there's a vase that has a handle and there's a gap between the vase and the handle, uh, he wants the camera to go through the gap or he wants it to go through the, the um, uh, wooden poles and a banister. Or, you know what I mean, like places that a camera can't actually go through, uh, but, you know, he can create uh, CG things so the camera can fluidly, you know, move. Uh, I'm not a big fan of that kind of uh, trying to be subtle, but not really, uh, (laughs) you know, kind of camera work. Um, But, yeah, it started here. uh, And uh, the film, uh, for the most part, looks pretty good. Um, I watched it on a 4K TV and it was dark as fuck. And I, I'm not. I, it wasn't bad. It just almost seemed like too dark, because um, there were points where like a lot of the screen was just black. And I don't know if that's just my settings or what. Every other movie looks great on it, so I didn't really think of it as being my settings. But maybe it is. Uh, but this movie was just overall kind of underwhelming uh, for me in the end. Again, I liked it still. Um, I ended up giving it a three and a half out of five, which uh, it used to be a four and a half to five out of five uh, in past years. So this is a a pretty big drop, you know, for me. Uh, and and I think part of it is just because this film tries so fucking hard to beg you to think it's cool. And unfortunately, yes, that's part of the reason it exists because you have this uncool guy that wants to be cool and he creates this guy Tyler Durden who is like really fucking cool quote unquote but the thing is like even the parts that aren't supposed to be cool in the same way that are actually just trying to be legitimately in our reality cool doesn't work for me let me give you an example I have already said I like narration uh, if it's done well. And I actually don't mind the narration here. It's very much kind of that uh, Chuck Palahniuk talk, you know. And I've read the book, and I actually used to say I like the movie better than the book. And I'd have to reread the book now. It's very short. But the thing is, whenever people talk in this, like the narration of, of Edward Norton's narrator, everything that he's... I like that he talks about, for example... 
Uh, I buy everything from a catalog and I look at this and I know what this is and I know where to find this, you know, and, and he kind of goes through and talks a little bit about his character and it helps develop it quickly, uh, develop him quickly. And, and all the things he's narrating about, you can trans transfer over to other parts and other scenes in the movie and you can, you can go, Oh yeah, that's totally how that person would act. You know, it develops the character. I think that's great. But there's a scene where Edward Norton had been at the fight club the night before his teeth are still bloody and uh, he goes into a meeting. He's sitting there, and someone says something to him. And all he does is just shows his teeth, and there's a bunch of blood. And like everyone's like, "Ugh, dude!" And they all kind of like just start talking to one another again. And uh, right after that happens, Edward Norton's narrator, like there is a narration, like a voiceover, where he says, "You know, you can swallow a pint of blood before you get sick, or something like that." And there's like a pause. And then he just like starts talking about something else completely. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that fucking line was there to try to be cool. And I can see right fucking through it. You know? And so there's a lot of things like that in, in Fight Club that I just felt like, man, you are trying really fucking hard, brother. Uh, so, yeah, Fight Club, not really my thing much anymore. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these movies, but especially Fight Club. Still a beloved film. I still like the movie. I own it. Uh, you know, I'll watch it again in the future and see if I have a different opinion. But as it stands right now, I didn't find it very impressive anymore. I'm starting to lean toward uh, Seven might be my personal favorite of his. I'll be re-watching that sometime, and maybe I can address that on the podcast here. Uh, but with all that said, um, that's kind of uh, my little ramble about Fight Club here. Uh, and looking at the time already, don't think I'm getting that shorter time, but uh, maybe we'll try again in the future. So, uh, yeah, David Fincher's Fight Club. Go check it out. Like I said, uh, you can see it on Hulu and Amazon Prime. I am going to come back in just a moment to talk a little bit about Almost Famous. All right, almost famous from the year from the year 2000. Um, it is written and directed by Cameron Crowe. The cast is uh, Billy Crudup, uh, Francis McDormand, Kate Hudson, Jason Lee, Patrick Fugit, Anna Paquin, uh, Feruza Balk, Noah Taylor, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, the late great, that is Philip Seymour Hoffman. It was released on September 22nd, 2000, the year 2000. Uh, this was, uh, by the time this drops, it'd be, uh, two days away from its 22nd anniversary, which is kind of wild. Uh, and watching this, it's really crazy. Actually it had a budget of $60 million and to my baffling surprise, $47.4 million at the box office. I thought for sure this was a massive success, and by God, it was not. If anything, it was a bit of a flop. You can rent this wherever uh, you rent things. So uh, this is a, a movie that takes place in 1973 where 15-year-old William Miller's uh, unabashed love of music and aspiration uh, to become a rock journalist lands him an assignment from Rolling Stone magazine to interview and tour with the up-and-coming band Stillwater. Um, this is uh, a movie that I just want to talk a little bit about here to uh, kind of close out the episode because 
Uh, I hadn't seen this movie in a very long time. I mean, uh, at least over 15 years, I feel very confident. And uh, this is a movie that I used to absolutely love. I still love it, okay? Um, Maybe not as much as I used to, but I still love it. Uh, Zoe Deschanel's in this, by the way, which I actually didn't mention. I completely forgot about. Uh, She plays uh, the sister of uh, William Miller. And let me tell you a few reasons why I love this. You know how, like, people really love a movie like Shawshank Redemption? Because, it, dude, that movie, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to like that movie. And I like that movie in a very similar way than I like like this one, even though they're very different films. But Shawshank Redemption just has, like, a great story. It's, like, there are moments that are so heartwarming, you know, but then there's also shit that's really fucked up. But none of it is that extreme. You know, like, like the violence isn't that extreme. Like, it's effective enough, and that's good. That's where it should be. But it's not that extreme. Uh, the story itself is not that extreme. The end of the film, though ridiculous, is not that extreme. So uh, it's just a really easy film for people to like, not unlike a Forrest Gump or something like that. It's like just an easy film for people to enjoy. And I would put um, something like uh, um, Shawshank Redemption in that kind of same category of Green Miles by the same filmmaker, but still. like These are just really easily digestible um, movies that have great, simple, easily digestible stories and that are filmed really well, performed really well, and that's that. The music is manipulative, but really good, Uh, you know, things like that. Almost Famous is kind of like that in a way. I'm not comparing it to those films, but I'm just saying I had a similar love for it when I was younger. It's written and directed by Cameron Crowe, as I said, and and, uh, Crowe has went on to do uh, a lot of really awesome things. Uh, Chief among them uh, being Almost Famous. Uh, but he also did Jerry Maguire. He did Vanilla Sky, uh, to name a few. He did some other stuff here. Uh, we bought a zoo, which I actually never saw, but that came out in 2011. Um, but he also directed Say Anything. Um, that's probably his biggest thing, uh, well, period. But then uh, next up is probably, if I had to guess, Almost Famous. Jerry Maguire was really popular in the 90s, though. But, uh, but yeah, Almost Famous seems to have really carried over, whereas Jerry Maguire's kind of been left in the 90s and people might still like it. But you don't hear people talking about it very much unless someone like quotes it and it's like, show me the money or whatever he says. So uh, Almost Famous is still a movie that people like really dig. And I, so I'm watching this movie and I'm like, holy shit, this movie is fucking amazing. Like the whole opening and stuff, whenever whenever uh, William Miller is talking to the Philip Seymour Hoffman character who is like the uh, kind of pretentious and strict um, uh, like uh, critic, rock and roll critic. And you see uh, William Miller, you know, starting to kind of develop into this critic and he gets this gig with Stillwater, you know. And he had already met Stillwater. He already knew them because he had worked his way backstage somewhere. Uh, just through happenstance. He didn't really do anything, but he was just in the right place at the right time. He said the right thing at the right time. And he kind of got where he needed to be. And so whenever Rolling Stone contacted him and was like, hey, you shouldn't be working for Philip Seymour Hoffman's thing. You should be working for us. 
his first assignment is with the band that he already knew, Stillwater. And uh, Billy Crudup is and Jason Lee are kind of the two uh, leaders of Stillwater. Jason Lee being the front man and the uh, kind of ipso facto leader that everyone kind of like, almost like they let him lead less less so uh, more so rather uh, than uh, you know he earned his leadership. But then uh, you have uh, Billy Crudup, who's kind of the more, he's the most famous guy of the group. He's the most talented guy of the group. Without him, Stillwater wouldn't be what they are, right? So you have the artist, who is essentially the backbone of the band, but then you have the vocalist, who is kind of the front man, uh, the face of the band to an extent. Of course, we see that in the movie Change because they get a T-shirt where uh, Billy Crudup's character is <laughs> like front and center, which pisses off everyone. Um, but also as someone who's been in a band before, uh, many bands, you know, uh, it's interesting to see their dynamic, how much they love being around each other. And then other times where they fucking hate it, you know, and they just don't like each other sometimes. And I was there. Uh, there, there's there's a lot going for this movie. I love uh, the vibe of it though, just the overall vibe. All like the soundtrack's great. Uh, it always it always feels kind of innocent and lighthearted because the main character you have is kind of innocent and lighthearted in William Miller. Uh, but also like the film goes to some dark places, but it ain't ever that dark. Okay, it never kind of gets to that full emotional kind of spectrum of what they're trying to. But God damn it, much like a a Forrest Gump or a Shawshank Redemption, by God, they get somewhere. And it just makes me feel great after I watch the movie. You know, it's one of those movies. Almost Famous is uh, uh, probably my, uh, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite camera crow, but it's way up there. Uh, easy, easy way up there. And William Miller's probably one of... Uh, I don't want to say I'm one of my favorite characters. That's not fair to say, but I just really love his character. I love how they use innocence in this movie. You know, he was like pushed ahead in school. So he was always with older people. He's used to being with older people. He made a lot of the older people laugh and then eventually was kind of like indirectly kind of, uh, you know, uh, left alone. Um, you know, so he wasn't as bullied as he as he was at a certain point in his life. And he ends up going with Stillwater. And what's he doing? He's hanging out with older people again. He's the young one. He's hanging out with older women that he has crushes on, like Kate Hudson's character. Uh, you know, there there are all these moments with William where he seems like a real kind of person going through these real issues. And he's put in these situations in ways that I can uh, believe due to the context that was given to me at the beginning of the film. Now, how hard is that, that to do? That shouldn't be hard. And that's what I mean by Almost Famous just being one of those classics. It's like, yeah, Forrest Gump has plenty of problems. I don't think it's one of the great films of, of, of all time, let alone even in its decade. All right. But it is one of those movies that you can just throw on. And it's like everything works because of the context that came before it. Like, it's absurd that, you know, uh, Forrest Gump did everything that he did in that movie, but it's not the point because there's context for everything and just, you can just have fun with it a bit. You know what I mean? And that's what Almost Famous is. I mean, William Miller gets into a lot of situations that he probably never would have, but he, you know, it, we get the context as we go. And uh, I just, I think it's great. I think his relationship with Kate Hudson's character is excellent. 
Um, I I have definitely been there where where you're with uh, kind of an older uh, woman, but because again you're used to hanging out with old like people older than you, you feel like you're just a part of the gang. And he has this crush on Kate Hudson's Penny Lane, and uh, Penny is uh, you know of course I, I don't think there's ever a moment where we would actually believe that Penny is about to uh, you know start a relationship with William, but God damn it, he does. He well, I don't know if he believes she's going to, but he wants that so badly, you know, because he he is in a situation uh, where uh, he's falling in love for the first time, you know, um, and and the consequences of of his behaviors as well as his relationships with Russell, Billy Crudup's character, or Jason Lee's Jeff, um, you know, these these characters also have. Uh, an effect on on William and 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 where William goes from there and how he relates to and talks with Penny Lane and uh, you know how he works with the band you know the whole movie is essentially him trying to get this interview with Russell Billy Crudup's character and and he's trying to get this interview with Russell and Russell just keeps being busy or he's drunk or he's uh, you know with Penny Lane and they're alone and in a locked hotel room or whatever or whatever you know there's like there are all these different reasons why you can't get this interview and that's kind of like the thing that's carrying you on uh, throughout the film is like is he ever going to get this goddamn interview i'm telling you uh th- this is this is a this is a movie on the level um of of those movies i mentioned before Shawshank Redemption and stuff where yeah uh, you just have a movie that makes you feel good uh that I have like no direct complaints about. It's just that I feel like uh, for me, I would have loved to have seen a bit more of an emotional spectrum to it where it might be able to hit me a little bit deeper. Um, but that's really just a nitpick. I also want to add uh, for as good as Billy Crudup looks uh, as a character from the what, whatever year this takes place. I already forgot. I think it's the 70s, isn't it? Uh, yeah, 73. Uh, for as good as Billy Crudup looks with a mustache and that hair, I'm telling you right now, uh, Jason Lee with his long hair and his beard looks like he is straight out of a band from the 70s. I don't think I've ever seen anyone so believable <laughs> as as fucking Jason Lee in, um, in Almost Famous. I mean, listen, I'm not really saying much of anything talking about this movie. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say. I'm just saying I like the movie. I think Cameron Crowe knocked it out of the park. Um, I think that uh, uh, William Miller is just a fucking great character. And Cameron Crowe writes in these characters like uh, Anita, which is Zoe Deschanel's uh, character, the sister of uh, William. Uh, Jeff, which is Jason Lee's character. Russell and Penny Lane. Uh, and how William gets to play with all of those characters, play off of them, uh, and as well as his mother Elaine, played by Frances McDormand, uh, all of these characters develop William into a different person by the end. And when a film can actually like develop a character where they truly are, much like There Will Be Blood, and I'm not comparing these two movies, but I'm saying, and There Will Be Blood, where Daniel Day-Lewis's Daniel Plainview... Uh, is a completely different kind of person from who he was at the beginning of the film. Uh, in this same way, William Miller, or in a similar way, I guess, William Miller is a different person by the end. Uh, the different, the main difference being William Miller is still William. He's still that same 
kid, but he's kind of there's a certain amount of innocence lost, a certain amount of lived experience that has developed this character. All of these things really add up to a not only a great film, but having a really fucking great character. And when I watch this movie, that's what I think about. So, and I love Noah Taylor, by the way. Of course, uh, I talked about um, the year my voice broke, which is the Australian film, and I think it was Noah Taylor's either his first film or really early one when he was a kid. Uh, it's really great. But uh, having said that, though, Noah Taylor is also good in this for the time that he's on screen. Uh, but all of that said, that is almost famous. Um, I think, uh, let's see what I gave this one. I already forget. Uh, I gave almost famous a four and a half out of five. That's a pretty goddamn good score. We'll see if it's on my top 100 whenever I get there. I will definitely be sharing that with you folks. But uh, for now, I'll be right back to close out the episode. You know, uh, this this is uh, I, I'm gonna plan to have kind of more uh, to say about these movies and and uh, have more of a kind of prepared bit to talk about. Today was a bit of a of a ramble because, quite frankly, that's kind of where my brain is right now. It's kind of in a ramble, uh, kind of rambling mood, trying to figure out and process how I feel about a lot of these movies because I'm taking this like favorites of all time thing really seriously, and it's kind of absurd, but. Uh, the point is, I'm going to, uh, whenever I'm actually going to review these movies like properly, I'll have some uh, pretty planned out stuff for you. Uh, but after next week, you know, not not next week, but the following week is our 100th episode. I'm going to have some really cool stuff uh, in store for you there as well as next week. But you have to wait until then to see it. So for now, I love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy.